When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, just before we begin, I wanted to take a short minute to talk to you about how you can get your hands on something new from the Welsh History Podcast. Thanks to Tee Public, we have a new online store. From t-shirts, stickers, hats, and everything in between, you can find them there. So have a look around, and you can do that at teepublic, that's T-E-E public.com forward slash stores forward slash Welsh dash history dash podcast thanks everybody and on with the show welcome back to the welsh history podcast episode 153 as the kingmaker turns. The defeat of Harlech Castle was a humiliation for Jasper Tudor and his Lancastrian allies. With it, King Edward IV now controlled Wales, and with that victory, Jasper's enemy, William Herbert, was given the title of Earl of Pembroke. On a side note, the title remains in that family. Currently, the 18th Earl of Pembroke is also William Herbert. This rise in preeminence of William likely continued to anger Jasper Tudor, but his rise was also angering one of the closest allies of King Edward, the Earl of Warwick, Richard Neville, who was incredibly unhappy to be slowly displaced by this upstart Welshman. Warwick had been spending his political capital trying to create an alliance with the King of France. Louis the Eleventh was ever able to make the various claimants to the throne dance to his tune as they tried to gain his favor. Warwick wanted the king to marry the sister-in-law of Louis, Bona of Savoy, so that they could use the marriage to create a lasting peace between the two sides and ending the hundred years of animosity. As a reminder, we actually haven't had a peace treaty between France and England to end the actual proper war of the Hundred Years' War. The king had other ideas. In May of 1464, he married Elizabeth Woodville, a minor noble who, in the eyes of many at court, was little better than marrying a commoner. Worse still, she used her links to the king to get much of her family married into noble houses, which was seen as very untoward. Laughably so, if I'm honest, but already ambition was seen as something not done by nobles and especially not done by a woman. Combined with the fact that the king had apparently married for love, or at least lust, meant that Warwick's plans were ignored and, worse yet, thrown aside. It created more enmity between the two men at a point where their relationship was already at a crossroads. The Nevilles had been a key family in propping up or tearing down various courts over the last half of a century. They had always been Yorkist supporters since the days of Duke Richard, but this new king appeared to do things his own way, and worse yet, appeared seemingly to ignore just how much power Warwick had given him. They had 
nicknamed Warwick Kingmaker for a good reason, and now he was irritated with the king who owed his crown largely to the power of Warwick. He might have been a Yorkist loyalist for years, but not at any price. Next on the list of unacceptable choices was the appointment of Earl Rivers, Elizabeth Woodville's father, to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. This took another important seat away from work and gave another important position to people who were not of the highest, in quotes, noble families. Warwick's issues with this might have been seen as valid in his day, but realistically much of the nobility was killed over the last two decades in battles between various claimants, it was only natural that others from lower ranks would start to take their place. But the speed of the rise of Herbert and Woodville became intolerable to the older ranks. Naturally, jealousy was taking the place of contentment and peace, and it was about to derail everything that had happened in the last few years. Warwick had spent these last few years making friends with Edward's brother, George, Duke of Clarence. A sign that Warwick really was on the outs with Edward over the next couple of years came about in part because he wanted Clarence to marry his daughter Isabel, something that the king opposed. As far back as 1464, Warwick had been positioning his elder daughters to marry into both of the York family, both Clarence and the younger brother, the Duke of Gloucester, Richard. This became even more important as the Woodvilles continued to marry into every available noble family in the Yorkist side. Edward wanted Clarence to be married into the Burgundian faction, marrying the Duke's daughter Mary, building on their budding alliance. Edward had been working towards a key relationship with the Duke of Burgundy, likely to continue to press his English claims for the French throne, or at minimum to check the ambitions of Louis XI. This created another wedge between the king and the duke as Warwick wanted closer ties to France, and this put an end to that. Meanwhile, Warwick's brother, George Neville, Archbishop of York and Lord Chancellor in the government of Edward IV, had become another member of irritation for the government and person of Edward IV. He desired to marry his niece, the above Isabel, to the Duke of Clarence, and because of this, this became a sticking point to Edward, who eventually took away his right as Chancellor, giving it instead to another up-and-coming person by the name of Robert Stilton, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, a figure of notoriety who is said to have only visited his see once while Bishop of that particular area. In July of 1468, Charles, Duke of Burgundy, married Edward's sister Margaret, a marriage to bring the Allies closer together, but once again went against the wishes of Warwick. The relationship was now fully on the rocks. The Duke, Charles, had actually been interested in marrying another sister of Edward's, Anna, but that had been forestalled and then cancelled due to a alliance marriage that was done previously. So, in this situation, they ended up marrying them, and it created this circumstance of building yet another anti-French alliance. As part of this, Edward is said to have been planning the invasion of France in the autumn of 1468, only for it to fall apart as his mainland ally, Charles, made peace with King Louis. In October, Burgundy and France were at peace, and Edward's hopes of being able to stake a claim to France or at least take back more French territory or 
one might argue, old English territory, had been foiled once more. And instead, he blamed his preparations for war on a Lancastrian plot so as to try and deceive the French, or at least justify what he was doing. Of course, Louis, being who he is, certainly didn't believe that. Warwick and Edward had finally reached the breaking point in 1469. At the center of that final straw was William Herbert. The Welshman claimed to have found documents being sent to Queen Margaret in France from Warwick. This happened a year after Jasper's last invasion attempt, and was said to be supported by traitors in court. Some of the nobility had been outed by confessions under torture, and the idea that the deposed king's family could make yet another comeback must have spooked Edward, as he was a ready listener to this contention. Herbert, of course, would love to have used this information against this person in last great resistance against his, his position, as, of course, he and Warwick had been enemies for quite some time at this stage. Likely both were looking for a way to rid themselves of their competitor. In the spring of 1469, a rebellion rose up in northern England, starting initially in Yorkshire. In April, the anger centered around taxes of grain products, basically a, what would be known as a corn tax, but corn referring to uh, wheat and, and grains rather than uh, what we know it as today. This popular revolt was eventually put down by John Neville, Warwick's younger brother. However, in June, everything kicked off again with a slightly different take. Calls were now being made for the king to step down because of his inability to control crime, the rising taxes, and especially after the failed French invasion, these taxes had gone up even more, and for the rise in power of the Woodvilles, something which obviously would anger the old guard, but can't see that as much of a concern for the local farmer, so you can guess who was leading this idea. Both of these rebellions were built around a singular figure who was said to have been of legendary status like Robin Hood, a great noble looking to bring corrupt officials to justice, something that of course would capture popular imagination and drive popular sentiment towards that ideal. The leader was so bold as to call himself Robin either of Redisdale or Mendal, an obvious nod to Robin of Loxley, as well as a not-so-subtle dig at the sheriffs and of King Edward. Obviously, they were unhappy with taxes, but the argument being made here doesn't sound like one that would be made, as I said earlier, by the peasants and... This overall grievance against the monarchy seemed to fall flat for a lot of nobility. Keep in mind that while there are some nobles that are mad and some that are siding with Warwick, there are also quite a number that are not, that still support the king, especially those who owe their allegiance and their ability to acquire wealth and position to this king and to the Yorkist cause. You know, just because Warwick is mad about losing his role doesn't mean that the rest of the nobility necessarily is in the same position or in that same belief. So you can understand that there would be a level of, of comparison going on here and a level of thought process that might not be equivalent. But this is kind of where we're at at the moment. There are some, obviously, in the Neville camp, 
obviously coming out of North York would be an area which the Nevilles were very strong in and an area that they've controlled for centuries, so thus would be an obvious point of contention and a point of... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hostility towards King Edward at this stage, but it also shows that it's not widespread enough that everybody is in revolt or upset. But even still, as the rebellion grew, there were up to 20,000 rebels that were claimed to be marching south towards London. King Edward was forced to move into the Midlands to try and stop them. He first requested troops from Herbert, who was slow at assembling his forces initially, and then he sent a request on July 9th to Clarence and Warwick for help as well. Conveniently, those calls went unanswered. On July 11th, 1469, in Warwick's stronghold in Calais, the Duke of Clarence married Isabel, creating a competing Yorkist faction for Warwick and his allies to rally around. With this marriage, George and Warwick released a letter to King Edward. The letter threw support behind the northern rebels, calling for the Woodvilles and their various relations to be removed from office. Much like what happened with the Duke of York previously, Warwick's not calling for the king to step down. He's not calling for the overthrow of the king. He's very subtly pointing to the supporters of the king and saying that they're the problem. They're the ones to be 
blamed, and they're the ones that need to be overthrown. So by avoiding calling for the king to step down and focusing on those he saw as the problem to the realm, so much so that he, in the letter, describes it as, in quotes, fall in great poverty of misery, end quote. He claimed they did this only for their personal gain, referring to the Woodvilles. Of course, a 20th century viewpoint gives us a look that this is a noble who is unhappy on being on the outside of power and complaining that the new queen had too much influence, something that, of course, Queen Margaret would feel as she was accused by the Warwicks and his supporters in a very similar vein. Of course, they could not come out and accuse the king directly, yet, so they instead claimed that especially the mother of Elizabeth Woodville, Jaquita of Luxembourg, was to blame for what had come to Edward's kingdom. Again, women were seen to be too strong in the eyes of these men, and the fact that they were holding this much power and this much influence was, in quotes, troubling. They accused them of having too much influence on political affairs, and Jaquita Chikata, for her part, would be accused of being a witch, a great way to devalue her and what she stood for. Of course, we have no idea if any of this is based on even a remote sense of reality. We know that, or what little we do know, comes mostly from the other side, so you don't really know how much influence she had. Keeping in mind, of course, they can't attack the queen directly if they're not going to attack Edward. So attacking her mother is a much easier thing to do. Of course, her father is dead at this point, so they can't blame him for anything anymore. So again, attacking Elizabeth's mother makes some sense. It pokes a hole in Edward's political control and political abilities but at the same time does it in a way that would be perceived, at least in this era, as showing the wrongness that's going on. You know, the idea that a woman would have any control is still perceived as something of a a shock and a horror. And so one of the ways to devalue these people and their arguments is to attack them on this level, which, of course, in our modern sense is very frustrating. But, of course, this is not a modern mentality or a modern viewpoint and so we have to live with their ideas and their concepts of the way things worked and like I said as happens throughout history a lot of times the only time we hear of women is typically if they are specifically in a position where they are perceived as having too much control and too much power you can go back to biblical to Roman examples of this to medieval examples of this where the evil woman is notoriously trying to take over, and that's bad. And like I said, it's the same argument they used against Margaret because Henry VI, being so weak, was unable to really influence what was going on politically, and so Margaret took more and more control over. Now, again, we have no concept of what was right or wrong about any of that, but what we do know is this is, this is the impression we get, so this is what we have to deal with. 
And of course, we have no real source for her opinions or thoughts. So there's little to go on in how she might have viewed things, most of which we do have, as I said earlier, comes from opposing sides in the War of the Roses. Another tactic was rumors of Edward's parentage and whether he was a bastard, something that would put into question his position as king and would, of course, leave George, Duke of Clarence, as the eldest true-born son of the Duke of York. That kind of rumor, started in all likelihood from the supporters of Warwick, was a very dangerous one, and one that would set in place an obvious excuse to continue with the Yorkist king while yet removing Edward, who would now be seen as not legitimate. Of course, this ignores the fact that, you know, one of the more famous kings of England was called William the Bastard, but, you know, we'll leave it there. Warwick and his forces, similar to what they did in earlier battles, landed in southeast in Kent while the northern forces were moving south, and on July 16th received an enthusiastic welcome. With forces in the north and the south, Edward needed help, and he needed it now. William Herbert moved north with the reserves from his Welsh-controlled lands. Herbert had delayed, waiting initially for assistance from the Earl of Devon, who was supposed to be bringing archers to assist, but he never sent any of these promised archers, and Herbert would instead go on ahead against the northern rebels without that key arsenal in his medieval battlefield, keeping in mind that archers were key to any sort of artillery-like appearance at this point, without cannons being endemic everywhere. You don't have that same sort of force, so you're now dealing with, you know, being able to throw arrows at people, and if you don't have that, and especially in this case, when Herbert's forces consisted primarily of of marching troops and some cavalry, there's not enough to protect them in a long fight. The rebel forces, along with reinforcements from Warwick's troops, caught Herbert at Banbury. The Welsh forces, lacking archers, would find that that was a flaw that would prove fatal for the men of the Earl of Pembroke. Herbert and his forces were defeated in short order, and the king's men in Wales was captured by the Warwicks and taken to Northampton. In vengeance likely for the many perceived wrongs, Warwick executed Herbert and his brother, removing a strong ally to the king. Herbert's end marked a very similar situation to most of the higher nobility in the War of the Roses. Being captured or losing at the end of a battle could quickly be a death sentence. Warwick continued to cycle of revenge, hunting down and killing any of the Woodvilles he could find, including uh, Elizabeth's father. The kingmaker had cast his die and chose violence over negotiations. The Woodvilles played the blood price for their ambition. Edward, meanwhile, sat in his castle in Nottingham, impotent to stop Warwick, but at the same time still knew that he had one thing Warwick did not, the support of the majority of the nobility. Warwick had isolated himself from many of those who still supported Edward, and now, seemingly, even though he won the battle, was caught in a trap. Edward was eventually caught by Warwick as well and put under house arrest, but returned to London, seemingly acting as if the rebellion and the death of his father-in-law, brother-in-law, and his most loyal noble were nothing more than a mild disagreement. 
Yet in wiping out the Welsh armies and raining vengeance down on the Woodville clan, Warwick remained a mortal enemy to King Edward, and the two sides were still locked in conflict, and Warwick knew that he had two choices now open to him. One, he could continue to push for the ascension to the throne of his son-in-law, the Duke of Clarence, or two, he could free the shell of Henry VI out of the Tower of London and raise him as puppet king. Henry Tudor, meanwhile, had been on Herbert's side at the battle and at all of twelve years old had been involved to some degree in what had happened. In the end, he had been spirited away from the battle and kept safe with the now-widowed Anne Devereux, who was now residing with her brother-in-law. His mother, Margaret Beaufort, did her best to continue to support her son from far off and looked out for his welfare as best she could. She had been previously been sending money to him, trying to keep him safe, had actually intervened at one point and came to visit him. It seems very insane to think of, but in this period of time as a ward to William Herbert, Henry would not have been in control or had a say in any of this matter, and his mother certainly wouldn't either. So she was doing the best she could. You can tell that she obviously loved her son a great deal, and as he was and would always be her only child, it was probably part of the reason why she was so close to him. But nonetheless, she continued to fight for him as best she could. The death of William Herbert was likely little mourned by Beaufort and her brother-in-law Jasper across the English Channel, so finding her son safe would have been of great importance to her and to him. In Wales, once again, the highest Welshman had been removed from office and the dangers of running too close to the crown was becoming rather obvious. But nonetheless, as we'll continue to see, Welsh will still have influence on matters going on in the War of the Roses. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for your comments, questions, and general willingness to uh, be involved in this podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. If you're interested in donating to my Patreon, I appreciate any support anybody gives me, and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Until next time, everybody, have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.